Hi, this is Ashley Farode, and you're listening to Behind the Bio, the podcast about the people behind the professions. The guest on this particular episode is Kim Rubenstein. It was great to actually have a chat to someone who is so experienced in the world of law, especially when it comes to the world of law from the academic side, the practice side, and now with a change of career going into the political side. The chat with Kim covers heaps of things, her desire and passion to get into law in the first instance and what drove her to a career in academia, to some of the cases that she has worked on which were essentially very important not only to her life but that of others, and ultimately where her career is evolving to right now into the political space. Specifically from the humanitarian side, so equality, citizenship, etc., then this is the podcast for you. I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this and all the other episodes possible, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kim Rubenstein on Behind the Bio. Hello, Kim. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Ashley. That's great to hear. Can I just check something? I was actually looking you up on Wikipedia before I yes. came here. Yes. Because <laughs> you've got a Wikipedia entry, I which do. is always special. Yeah. Um, and it actually says to pronounce your name as Kim Rubenstein, Correct. not Rubenstein. Correct. Interestingly enough, from yes. my cultural background, Indeed. I would have read that as Rubenstein. How come it's pronounced differently or What's the difference? There? Yeah, so the two, there are two things about that. The fact that I actually put that in to make sure that people know how, how I pronounce it because I've spent my whole life correcting people when mm. they say I'm introduced to something as Rubenstein and I correct it as Rubenstein. Now, it's a family thing. I don't know the origin of it, but there are at least 500 Rubensteins in Melbourne who have always pronounced it Rubenstein. But there is another family who spell it differently. So my name is spelled R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. So it's Ruben and we say Stein. The Rubins, R-U-B-I-N, and the same ending, say Stein. Now, there is no logic to that because the middle letter shouldn't make any impact. But <laughs> there must be something about the families deciding that. And... Um, Someone told me that E-I-N in Scottish is E-I-N, and I think it must have been a group who decided to make it more anglicised, Rubenstein. Right. But because my identity is that it's Rubenstein, I've always corrected people. Of course. Um, and so I just thought now, you know, a Wikipedia entry is a good place to be able to Educate. at least have on the record. <laughs> and, in fact, it's about having it on the record as well. I mean, we live in a time with um, sound recordings, but I've always wondered about um, what I would have pronounced Vida Goldstein, V-I-D-A-G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N, who was one of the early women independent candidates for parliament in the 1900s. Um, and, but I found out, um, and it took a long time, that she actually pronounced it Vida Goldstein, so the exact opposite right. of what I would do. Um, and because it was so difficult to find, I think it's just always you know, that, that sort of legacy of knowing that if I do want people in the future to know, and just currently people mm. meeting me, um, and in, in other things that we've been doing recently, we've been saying Rubenstein like 
clean, remember? Yeah. You know, because sometimes you tell people and you get them so confused that they say the wrong thing because you've made a point of it. So, <laughs> so yes, so a very long answer to what is probably a very simple question. No, but, but that, an that interesting is, one nevertheless. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And like, look, it just points to the fact that all names have history and interesting things that happen to them and, you know. Exactly. All of us want to do the right thing, so we want to make sure that we pronounce it correctly. Thank you. Um, now, about this chat. So uh, just before we turn the microphones on, I kind of mentioned that I think maybe the best way to do this, considering we could go down various rabbit holes of things that you're interested in and you stand for. So what I thought we would do is maybe spend 30 minutes or so just talking about the beginnings of your career and how you got to the lawyer, if I can call it that, that you are in the sense of the things that you do, especially in terms of equality and citizenship and so forth, because there are so many different things you could have done in law. Yes. Once we get around that and kind of understanding where the drivers or perhaps the source of all of that was, maybe we talk about how your career is now changing Yes. to a different direction, which a lot of people are that we relate to, even those who are not in this space. No, Um, And your thoughts about it and and, you know how how you're seeing it, whether it's a change and evolution, etc. Perfect. So let's start at the very beginning. (laughs) Yes, tell me, how how did it all begin? So where were you? Where did you start to study? How did your passion come to be? All right, well, to tell the beginning, I do want to add into the beginning that I'm a sixth-generation Australian um, a descendant from a, one of the early Jewish convicts, mm-hmm. Henry Cohen. And I think that that in itself is something that is also framing in terms of my identity, that that sense of, um, you know, the um, vagaries of people's lives. He was a merchant in England um, and he was found guilty of being in possession of a stolen promissory note. Now, in the, in the days that I started teaching, I'd say that's like a check. But for students today, they don't even know what checks are anymore because of the um, nature of transfer of money. But he um, was found guilty of, of receiving a stolen promissory note as payment. And when he went to bank it, he was, um, found, he, he was charged. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he said that he was innocent, but ultimately um, it was the 10th time that he'd been found. And that was a practice, obviously, of his at the time. And his wife and 10 children, I think, came out on a separate ship as free settlers. So there's that sort of background to my sense of identity that I think is quite interesting. And um, I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I started school um, at a time when they were st- experimenting with starting school as four-year-olds. I'd been at kinder and at four I started what was is prep at um, Mount Scopus College in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, one of, the, I think, the largest Jewish day schools in the Southern Hemisphere. But after a few years there, I wasn't particularly happy. The story is I don't really remember it, that there was someone else in the class who was a bit of a bully. And my mum had been a, a graduate of MLC and Mount Scopus was down the road from Presbyterian Ladies College, not MLC, but PLC. And she rang one day to inquire and they were so intrigued about a student from uh, Mount Scopus inquiring that they led to an interview and I started there at grade four. And that I think was also formative because um, I come from a very strong and proudly identifying Jewish family, but then being in a non-Jewish environment. And my parents were keen to make sure that I sort of was comfortable in, you know, both worlds. Those both worlds are obviously very connected, but um, when we had, when I had been in those years at the Jewish day school, I did outside non-Jewish brownies and the outside swimming club, which wasn't Jewish. But when I moved into 
PLC, then all my outside curricular activities was Jewish guides and it was um, the youth, Jewish youth movement and stuff. So I think those two things were, were important about that sense of connection and understanding of each of the parts of my identity being Jewish and also being Australian. Mm. And um, that was very, for, very significant, I think, for me. And I knew enough about my Jewish identity in a non-Jewish environment to be able to answer questions and deal with some some very surface anti-Semitic stuff as a kid growing up that made me very very proud and strong in my identity. And I felt like I could share with non-Jewish people things about what it meant to be, you know, to be Jewish. And that was always really important to me. The decision to go into law. Yes. When, when do you remember when that happened or did it? Yes. Yeah. So the schooling experience was key too because I did a lot of debating at school. Right. And I think there was something about debating that just made it seem sensible. I'd studied both for a little while, both sciences and humanities, and then locked in on um, the humanities. And by locking in on humanities in terms of a career path, law seemed a very logical place to follow Mm -hmm. the other aspect in terms of that identity is that in that same sort of line of um henry cohen my great aunt um is a woman who's well regarded in victoria joan rosenov she was the first woman barrister in victoria um in the 1960s so even though i never really knew her i have a sort of a fragment of a sense of having met her because she was my grandmother's oldest sister by about 18 or 19 years so she was much older so even though, I, but, but my grandmother obviously, um, who who didn't go to law school and didn't have a sort of a highly professional life, her older sister had been the first woman barrister in Victoria. So that was part of my consciousness as well. So those two things led to me thinking that law would be a great thing without really having a sense of it because neither of my parents went to university. Sure. My grandfather on my dad's side was a fruiterer, so it wasn't like there was a family tradition of going to university but certainly going to Presbyterian Ladies College put in me the sense that that was the normal next step. And at that point when you started studying law did you already have a vision of what your career or profession would be like once you graduate? No other than the fact that I love debating and so life as a barrister might be something that I could do but beyond that I guess the only other telltale sort of reflection is that I was very involved with, um, you know, the Jewish youth movement scene. And the youth movement was very much about your role in society and being responsible to the greater community. And that had been a very strong theme also at PLC. The principal, who I've written a biography about, Joe Montgomery, and who's, you know, 96 and still with us and a contributor, um, really instilled that sense that you have a privilege with education and that that privilege is something that is for the greater good of the community. Mm. So both at school and outside of school and I guess a very strong sense in sort of Jewish values of contribution and public service, those things sort of I think coalesced to help guide me in what I would do with my law degree. But I didn't arrive at law school with a very clear plan at all. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, you talk about the value of education, which I, of course, completely understand and appreciate, probably because I work and have worked a lot in education marketing, especially education marketing. Yes. And one of the things that uh, makes it very easy for me to get out of bed this each morning about the work that I do is ultimately, even though marketing in itself might be a dirty word, I am doing that for the benefit of people's education and research. And I know how important that is, not only for individuals, but society and humanity as a whole. Yeah. So that's, that's great. However, what I'm thinking though is you're talking about that, that value of education. 
And of course, your career ended up being very much on that side because yes. you started working in Melbourne University, then yes. ultimately ANU, yes. UC more yes. recently. Yes, so exactly. you very much plugged yourself back into that. Well, it's interesting because when I finished law school, I did work for two and a half years in a commercial law firm. Um, I thought it would be good having studied law to get the experience. I'd done a few things over summers before there were sort of summer clerkships, but things that gave me a sense of what it meant to be a lawyer. Um, and I thought I wanted to be grounded to be able to practice if I I wanted to practice and um, I you know began in one of those big commercial law firms and as a couple after a couple of years I thought well this is great experience but it's not really the framework that I think is best suited to my skills and my social identity mm-hmm. of being a contributor to a greater society and not that they don't have a role to play in society but that that wasn't but at that stage I still wasn't sure actually what I did want to do, and I'd loved university so much. I'd loved being a student. I'd loved the ideas of law, and I could see in a commercial law practice sometimes those ideas weren't that relevant to decisions about law. It was more about the commerce of an, a decision than it was necessarily about the legal issues at stake. That I thought, well, if I I'd had so much fun and I'd enjoyed, I'd had a gap year before I'd started uni, so I thought, why don't I go overseas again as a sort of break from those two and a half years and I could have worked in a law firm overseas, but I thought, but that's more of the same and you only get to go out on weekends, you know, it's, they're <laughs> intense places to work. Um, so I, and, and a very good friend of mine who'd been a year ahead of me at high school had gone off to Harvard and I'd visited her while she was there. She was actually doing anthropology, not law, but I walked around the law school at Harvard and I thought, this is what I want to do next. So I don't know where it'll lead me, but I just love the opportunity to and came back and sort of applied for scholarships and then again very wonderfully got supported to go and do my master's there. Hmm. And it was when I was there that it suddenly gelled. I love studying. I could be a student for the rest of my life in the sense of being in a university environment. I loved all the youth movement stuff, which was really like teaching. And so I could be like a youth movement leader in a law school environment. And then the third thing, which is key really, I think, to my whole trajectory is that sense that as an expert or as an independent commentator, I could actually contribute to public policy from this yeah. position. And those three things together, suddenly realised they are all the things I love and I can be paid to do all those things. So that was the beginning of that pathway to education. But with for me, I kept my practising certificate and I have to this very day. Mm. So I still do legal cases on my specialty. Um, and having that combination has really been key and why I've loved being an academic so much. I mean, what I'm hearing here is that it must have been quite a empowering moment though because a lot of people want to make change on the things that they believe in but of course people think well i'm just one man as as the saying goes how can i make an impact but what it seems like that you found almost three avenues brought them together into a single thing that allowed you to actually be vocal understand the processes that are required for change and ultimately do something about them as well from a legal perspective. That's right. So I could see the empowerment there. Yeah, and and the excitement of, um, I mean, not that you're always successful, but that you have a frame or an avenue to really do, to try and have that sort of impact. And even with the students, I mean, that sense of being able to... um, Uh, really energise people about why you're passionate about something. Because I taught constitutional and administrative law for many years at Melbourne Uni. It was a combined course and it's a compulsory course. And to be able to see people who came in not really expecting to enjoy it and being enlivened by it because you can show them how significant it can be in dealing with government excesses of government power or the federal-state relationship, things that on their face might feel pretty dry but actually flow on to have a real impact in our lives, which 
of course, over COVID, we're seeing even more so mm. with COVID borders internationally and locally. Things are um, having, you know, important reflections on our federal system to show students that and to bring that alive is really exciting. But then, as you said, and then to actually use that expertise in a way where you can consult or advise government or make a submission to a parliamentary committee or write an opinion piece or go on Q&A or whatever those things are where you can bring that into the public sphere, that's been really fantastic. And I love the fact that, you know, you're talking about being in law but actually having a, a public aspect attached to yes. it. Um, not, I mean, not everybody wants to, so I appreciate mm. that. And there's a lot of lawyers who sit behind desks and you, they don't really get representation in terms of face-to-face with anyone apart yes. from the work that they do, and that, that's okay. But I love the fact that you're saying there is a career in law that actually can have a face and it's not about being a barrister. No. What do you say to students? Because I could imagine in all your years of teaching and and all the things that you've done, especially in universities, I'm sure there are younger students who are trying to find in which direction they can push their knowledge because law is, is massive. Exactly. And, of course, from my understanding, and I'm probably making this way too simple, but you've kind of specialised almost in three or four areas. Yes. And so those other students who are trying to find which they'll be most useful with and which is most aligned to their passions. Do you ever give them advice on how to find their identity in the legal sphere, so to speak? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It's one aspect of um, being an academic that I've loved, that mentoring role. Mm. Um, So I've often encouraged people to get that sort of on-the-ground experience first, I mean, because it worked well for me, and if it works well enough for them in terms of either it be here in Canberra in the public service or in a commercial law firm, just to get a sense of that aspect of being a lawyer, but to remember that that's not the only um, way that it can be done and to always almost be strategic about thinking what of its va- what is its value for you for your career longer term. Now, you could go into that and think, I'm actually passionate about this stuff and I want to stay there. But if it's not something that aligns with your values to think, well, there's a value in having done this to get a sense of this and where it fits with the other things that I'm going to do. And then I do, I speak through with them about, you know, public policy. Um, and there's so many aspects of being a lawyer that is uh, relevant to public policy. Um, in-house law, you know, uh, being an in-house lawyer in, in a, a firm of any capacity, whatever, it's doing um i met someone the other day who's working in um in the maternal health area but has a law degree but is doing some sort of corporate role in that with their law legal background so there are i mean in some ways in this day and age having a law degree is almost like a great base degree from which you can choose to do a range of different things it gives you a mindset and skill set that you can use in a whole range of things so i'm doing a a good job here for all the law schools around the country promoting law schools and and that's absolutely fine and i know this is probably going to the most basic thing to say but is that because the understanding of law is essentially the understanding of the rules by which essentially our society runs. So if you understand the mechanics of that, you can then understand how to make change or the basis of why things are the way they are and all that. So I think it's it's kind of like understanding the pieces in the watch so that you can tell the time. You know, you can tell the time without understanding that, but if you do understand how the rest of it works, it gives you a Excellent. I love that analogy. I also think that um, people... um, um, don't necessarily always appreciate that those sort of fundamental structures of how the pieces of the clock go together has an impact on the time. So, for instance, if your clock is going to run slow or fast because something hasn't been put together so well, 
in a similar way our structures are not fixed they can actually be changed so something like our constitution which i talk about and i think about gender in the constitution there are aspects of our constitutional structure that don't actually have to be like that so we can think also creatively about the way law man not manipulates but directs a certain end and how we can perhaps be more creative about how we reformulate those structures or um, in you know very um, other basic terms just the notion of precedent and understanding a thinking framework that will help you in any con context in terms of the logic of a particular argument or the persuasiveness of a particular ideal those sorts of things are built into the study of law and they are then helpful in any sort of context mm. um one other question that i'll ask about the discipline of law especially for those who might be kind of studying it right now yes. and this is a question that i've got too there seems to be a conflict or maybe that's not the right word to use or at least kind of two opposing components of law one is the fact that laws usually have been set in place for quite some time mm. um and of course i'm talking very generally about even which law i'm referring to but the the, the idea that there is um there the is science of law yes that's right but on the opposite side as humanity changes yes we need to modify law in yes. order to suit the fact that all societies change and evolve hopefully for the better correct so you're finding the evolution with something yes. that has a lot of structure and components in it that have been set in for a very long yes, time yes. and in fact the fact that they've been set in for a very long time is what gives them strength sometimes yes yes excellent question <laughs> and it's really i mean it is the core of a lot of tension in society in terms of accepting the value of institutions as a sort of a sort of almost a liberal democratic um foundation to the way we do things but at the same time recognizing that those structures are not absolute and were in fact they're all very human made and so if our understanding of the needs of humanity change then we also need to reflect on those structures so i think um in many ways and this leads into a more gendered discussion you know all of those structures were set up by by um uh, men and in fact um you know there are some early women who tried to influence uh constitutional structures so there's a great there's a great example of this we're sitting here in canberra we love our capital city and i wouldn't want to be anywhere else however in the 1890s when they were discussing the con the framing of the constitution where the seat of government would be the decision was influenced by the fact that the people from melbourne and the people from sydney were each wanting it in their own states and there was a lot of rivalry between them so the way that they managed that rivalry was to place in our constitution that the the um capital would have to be at least 100 miles away from sydney yeah. now justice elizabeth evert who was one of the first women on the federal court says if women had been sitting around that table drafting the constitution they would have never agreed to a capital at least 100 miles away from someone's home because what what does that then dictate about balancing work and family mm. and i think it's a really excellent example if that we rethink the way we set things up whose lived experience are we relying on to make that the norm and um i think one of the positive things of covid with the zooming and so forth is to say we should be thinking a little bit more about parliament house and representation in society in a way that is more enabling for people wherever they live in australia to be involved maybe of course not entirely on zoom but a bit more flexibility to allow people's different lived experiences to get into parliament
You're talking about, or well, you were talking earlier about the fact that you've got an impact on people. Yes. You know, and being yeah. in universities is yes. exactly the right place to be doing that, shaping yes. minds and attitudes, but allowing them to develop in their own way too. Yes. What about the first thing, or if not the first thing, the thing that you're most proud of in terms of perhaps some impact that you've had socially? Yes. Uh, is there a particular moment where things changed for you out of perhaps the university career or something you were working on or on a case or whatever that, that might have been? Yes. That you went, this was a big moment of change. I'm really proud of it because it started going in a different direction and I've achieved something that mm. has had great impact beyond, of course, all the things that we were talking about yeah. in terms of influencing students. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of things, actually. Um, in my citizenship law work, um, I've been an advocate as a barrister, actually, in a couple of cases um, in the High Court. Um, and it's an interesting example. One of them was a case which I lost, but by losing, it influenced the government to change the legislation so that the outcome would be different. Right. Um, and the example is, um, in fact, um, of the legislation around, and it's, it might be a bit too particular, but very briefly, the relationship between Papua New Guinea and Australia. And people born in Papua had been born Australian citizens, but when it became independent in 1975, they lost that. And the framework within that, which that happened meant that someone who had an Australian mainland parent and a, Papua, a native Papuan parent, um, the, the framework of the law meant that they lost their Australian citizenship and even though they had a parent from mainland Australia, they weren't recognised as Australians. They were born Australian right. and they lost it, but they had no way of getting back to it. Now, the High Court ended up affirming that interpretation, but people could see that that was just so unfair. The two ways that you become a citizen are generally by birth or by descent, and neither of those were available for those people. And they amended the legislation to enable that group of people to be able to apply for citizenship. Now, interestingly, the woman whose case I ran always felt affronted that she had to apply for something that she felt was part of her identity. Mm -hmm. But from a practical measure, I really that that case and her and representing her made a real change. Um, in a similar way, uh, a, a case that I ran for a stateless child who would ultimately have been stateless and the government had decided that the decision in a way that continued that. I got a group of students to work with me. The family were now overseas, but the child had been born in Australia, but she had no access to any citizenship overseas, although formally she did, and um, but practically there was no way she could get it. And I got a group of students together and we just, just you know, I got the permission of the mum who had contacted me seeing that I'd written about this just to ask my opinion. And I said, look, if I can get some students together, would you like us to have a go at challenging the decision? Right. And that child is now an Australian citizen. So, <laughs> you know, she's not here yet because the family is still stranded outside. But when she's 18 and if she has the wherewithal yeah. to be able to get here, she would have a right here and would probably be an amazing um, participant. So there's um, that aspect. The other is in relation to gender. Um, and we all know that recently Kate Jenkins has done a review of Parliament as a safe and equal workplace. When the first two ABC stories came out um, back in November of 2020, um, I wrote with my colleague Trish Bergen um, a piece about how it would make sense for Kate Jenkins and the Sex Discrimination Commissioner to do a review of Parliament as a safe and equal workplace because she'd just finished that broad um, uh, report on on harassment in the workplace and she'd done work in the university sector and, and we laid out why it would make sense for her to come in and there was very little 
it was about it was a December um, op-ed and very little traction apart from me speaking about it. Um, and then the Brittany and Brittany Higgins came out with her um, story, and so we decided that we would write a letter directly to the Prime Minister drew upon a network of uh, women's organisations supporting what we'd written and we attached the opinion piece. And three weeks later, and I'm not saying it's only by our, but we were part of that changing um, pressure that he called on Kate Jenkins to do that review and now she has handed down a report that I think will be really important and Parliament really must act on to move forward. Now, we haven't seen the changes yet, but I feel proud that I've been part of it as a catalyst to that happening and as we'll discuss later I hope to be able to actually do something in Parliament to make that happen. And indeed and of course it is an evolution of things one thing leads to another and then to another and then change happens. It's not a single situation No. Both of the things, the cases that you just mentioned obviously have a bit of a public profile to them. Yes How much of the work that you do is behind the closed door so to speak of the courtroom versus you managing the public conversation, and I think you said before, you know, you, when you wrote about it. Yes. So obviously that's for, for public consumption. Yes. Yes. Um, to gain support or understanding, what have you. Yes. Are, are you balancing those two things in most cases? Um, it's it's different degrees. So a lot of my citizenship law work in the tribunals and the courts don't end up in any public sense. They're mm. just individually helping with the case where we saw the change in legislation because there is that public policy outcome. Um, I actually wrote an academic piece about it so that students can learn about that. And I talked in that academic piece about that duality of being the representative and being as sort of someone interested in the jurisprudence and how you bring those two things together. It's not common in Australia. It's quite common in the US. And so when I'd done my graduate work overseas, um, that had made um, an impact on me because a lot of American academics do a lot of public advocacy as amicus curiae when you come as a friend to the court. And so I've also done a couple of those cases of, of where I'm a friend to the court seeking to bring um, the expertise into the court. Mm-hmm. That happens much more in America, and I've been involved with one in America. I've had a go here in Australia, and our, our court is less open to accepting those sorts of claims, and that's a much broader story about the psychology of the courts. But, but yes, um, it really depends on the case as to how much, how public the the added value of it is to um, more broadly than the individuals. But um, certainly, I've always had that real sense that if you can, in a positive sense, add to the public discussion and to the government thinking about the outcomes and you've got something that you can contribute then you should mm. it's nice to think that in the very beginning of this conversation you were talking about how much you like debating yes and then you know go kind of do a jump to what we're talking to right mm-hmm. now and you can see the outcome of them of that and how important that kind of early passion for debating really was yes. it wasn't just because it's fun to argue no. but rather it's because it's about putting arguments forward in a succinct way that's yes. balanced in order to enable either some people to follow you or understand yes. that debate yes. or join you depending on yes. what the outcome of that that's is. That's right, that's right. And there is, it is interesting um, for the little bit more in terms of the TV public output, which is more recent, mm. how far-reaching that is and, and the people that um, reach out who I've never heard of before who say you've been able to explain that in a way that made sense, you know, things that are, that, you know, are, are complex on one level don't have to be on another and if you can make it more accessible for people... I mean, the flow on for me is they become more active citizens. They're more that it empowers all of us then to make decisions about how things should or shouldn't work, and you know, and and in, 
intervening when you can. Yeah, I guess the truth is then what happens is you get informed debate as opposed to yes. essentially opinions thrown yeah. that are based perhaps rather than on fact, maybe yes. perceptions yes. of things, yes. which is such a big conversation at the moment, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, indeed. Um, maybe just one last bit before we yes. kind of go into your change of career. Um, during all those years that you've been working in the universities and everything else, the media aspect has changed. Yes, it has. Uh, you know, we've gone from newspapers and television being the main source, yes. of course, social media, digital, now a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. How are you finding that transition? I, are you working with it? Yes. Is it problematic? Yeah. I do like the fact that there's more channels and different ways. Yeah. Of How, just tell me about that. Yeah. Because you would have seen it change. I have. Yeah. In fact, I went back. My very, very first public contribution was in my first couple of years as a teacher, um, teaching, as I said, constitutional administrative law. And there was a report in the paper about an immigration application. A fellow called David Irving, who was a Holocaust denier, actually, had applied for a visa that had been rejected. Mm. And the newspaper report just misrepresented the legal framework. So I wrote this letter to the editor as a lecturer <laughs> that got published saying, as I tell my students and explained, you know, what was wrong with that. So that was my first foray. And then for most of the time, it was just opinion pieces that I would um, learn to craft and um, that would be helpful in any sort of particular way, mainly about citizenship, but sometimes on gender. Certainly I wrote one from when I was in the States on a second sabbatical when um, Mary Gordon, who was the first woman and only woman on the High Court, was replaced by a man so there were no more. And it so enraged me that they... You know, there were so many women on the federal court who could easily have been chosen and they chose to replace her with a man that I wrote a quite um, a strong piece um, based at the time in Washington and reflecting on some of the US experience in terms of court appointments. But mainly that's a long answer to mainly opinion pieces. Yeah. But then um, the universities became more um, uh, concerned about and wanting to amplify the voices of academics, so radio and and then only most recently TV with Q&A and various bits and pieces. But I think your question, and, and those are th that actually on Q&A my debating background is quite helpful because mm. when you go into a debate if you have a topic you've got a whole lot of range of different ideas but you're really not sure what the other side are going to say and so you have to be ready yeah. in on q a it's similar they tell you the topics but they don't tell you you know what the questions are going to be and so it's a similar preparation where you've got a whole lot of ideas that you've prepared think around the feet. topic but then you think on the feet as to how mm. you respond to them so that, that, that also has been helpful. But I think you're asking also about social media and Twitter. Um, and I have been, I mean, probably for the last four or five years, I'd have to look at my handles to see it says when you, when you started. And it was someone in my, our university media office at um, ANU at the time who sat down with me and we set up my account. And, you know, they said it's very iterative in terms of how you, you go with it um, and to be thoughtful about, you know, what you say. And I have been pretty selective. I'm not, um, I mean, more recently in what I'm doing, we're more active, but I would have, um, you know, ultimately been using it mainly for things when I had a particular expertise. And I think, I think this is the point probably that is common to it all, Ashley, which is as an academic, I don't feel like I can comment on anything and don't have a desire to content comment on everything, even if I have an opinion. I, I only want to bring my voice as an academic when I'm an expert and have some added value that mm. I feel that could be helpful for others. 
it's slightly different now with this new step but certainly as an academic I think it makes sense that we contribute whichever forum it is and protect ourselves because of course of um, the more social media has more um, consequences in terms of the backlash and the um, awfulness that's out there about society that gets amplified in those areas. I mean, mm. it's always out there. I do. I think I did once get some sort of anti-Semitic letter in the pa- in the in to the university from something I'd written in the paper. But otherwise, um, and yeah, it's interesting in terms of how social media plays a different role in all of that. Yeah, so in other words, it's almost like saying, well, there's the benefits and the opposite of benefits for social media, and I guess you just have to work through them. But but it sounds like you've embraced it, though. Yes, it's- yeah, no, I have, I have. Um, I think Twitter is really interesting, and it's a mm. um, very stimulating source of seeing what else is out there and having some sort of contribution. But you have to be very aware you're speaking to particular groups. It's not as broad as if you – I mean, well, it's different types of broad. I mean, if you have something, an opinion piece in the paper, that's still a specific group who are yes. reading papers or ac- accessing it. So, um, yeah, so I think we are – it's un- incumbent on us if we're wanting to influence public discussion to use whichever means you have to do that. Let's move over to where you are currently yes. and the choice to essentially evolve your career beyond academia and the cases yes. that you do that yes. kind of practical work into politics, yes. essentially. Um, the Kim for Canberra, tell me about this. Was the seed of that idea implanted quite some time ago? Did it happen somewhat organically because you realised that the empowerment that we were talking about yes. relatively early on in yes. your career, that this is yet another aspect of that? Yes. Um, or does it come from something else? Look, I think there are different um, parts to the answer, actually. When I was at high school in year 10... Um, we had a teacher um, that was 1980 who wanted to teach us the political process and it was an election that year so she, each of the classes became electorates and I became the leader of what was actually called the United Australia Party that's the time we created <laughs> so that's ironic and we developed policy platforms and um, we had the school had a sort of um, a way of teaching students how to use media and they had a little a camera and we uh, each of the leaders of the party gave our policy speeches and then we all voted. And uh, the United Australia Party won, mm. but I lost my own seat. <laughs> right. So it was a really interesting political experience. But that certainly, you know, made me think about how, how stimulating politics is. But throughout my university life, um, you know, party politics, when I looked around campus, was so unattractive that I just thought, that's really not for me. And I threw myself into debating and, and mooting at university and all the other extracurricular activities that my skill sets were being developed without without it being a party political. And then when I started teaching and having a family and looking around at all the things that I was working on which were about trying to influence parliament, I just looked at it and thought it would be so uh, much of a sacrifice for my own personal life to do something like that with kids who are growing up that it gained. Just, I just felt very satisfied that I was making a public contribution and having what I believe is the best of both worlds. So it hadn't been in my mind in any concrete sense. But over the last couple of years, there are three things that have come together that sort of made me think, this is a moment. Um, One is COVID and just the impact of it on our society and for people to see what we were talking about earlier, the amplification of how profound government structures are on our lives. So the closing of borders, both externally and internally. Um, I was doing a lot of public commentary about what I felt was a failure in terms of 
the stranded Australian citizens who couldn't get back into the country. And the federal government does have the power to create quarantine stations around the country. So we could have worked out a better way to enable Australian citizens to come back without damaging the health of the rest of the nation in a properly organised quarantine framework. So that was one thing that was really key to me and also the heavy-handedness of it, that attempt to actually block directly those citizens in India from coming back in, which thankfully through a lot of public advocacy I think was short-lived. But And then the other thing that really got me was anyone in the country was prevented from leaving. You were, we were effectively, you know, legally trapped in Australia. We could not leave without an exemption. Now, when I was at uni in the 1980s, I used to write to a Russian refusenik, a Jewish man who had applied to leave Russia. There were thousands of them who were trapped in Russia and they were effectively punished for applying to leave. Um, and I remember thinking at the time how lucky we are in a liberal democracy to, to not even have to think about the freedom to leave. And here we are and were, only up until very recently, for a good couple of years, formally trapped in Australia. And again, I'm not saying that we didn't need to protect our health in any sense, but there would have been, I think, um, more balanced liberal in, a, in the smaller liberal sense ways of doing that balancing. So that made me realise how how significant that is and how everyone in society could see that. You didn't have to come to a class of mine and be impassioned by what I was trying. We could all see that. So that was one thing. The other was I have been doing some really great work with my colleagues um, about gender equality. And during COVID, we had the opportunity to speak to high-level officials in different government departments, the COVID commission, where people really understood what we were saying. You know, universal childcare that came in immediately was the infrastructure that was needed for people to be able to get to work. Now, that's an infrastructure we all need if you're a parent, regardless of COVID. Um, and then that was the thing that was first cut off when they the snapback. And other aspects of the gendered experience that people were understanding but the government wasn't acting on just made me realise I can be doing all this outside advocacy which raises people's consciousness but until the people in parliament actually believe it and decide that they're not only going to listen but act on it, we're not going to see any change. So that was another thing that I that I could bring my my interest and skill set into parliament in a way that might possibly change things. And the third thing is my own personal situation. I'm very privileged in the sense that I'm now in my mid-50s with a reasonably secure financial framework with children who are adults, they're in their 20s, who are really interested in this sort of stuff and who are actually part of the larger um what is now the campaign team like yeah so i it wasn't a position of saying i'm gonna to have to sacrifice my family life if anything we're doing this together as a family might have its tensions and its own <laughs> issues about decision making and so forth and, and thankfully there are plenty of others who are involved and it's not not just a, a family thing but um so those three things aligning were really key. And then the other is that the Senate, I'm running for the Senate, I set up a party because as an, uh, oh, no, this is the other bit that as I'm running as an independent. This yes. is the other key thing. I explained that party politics had never attracted me and it still doesn't. And I see that the parties have been part of the problem for things like climate change um, and the bipartisanship of detention of refugees, things that really have, um, you know, that's that are really important to me have been blocked by parties. So if I'm going to do something like this, I've got to stay true to myself. And as an academic, being an independent 
commentator, expert. I can stay true to myself. I can go into politics without having to sacrifice those things that are really key to me. So that was the other other key thing. And then I was just going on to say, but the Senate is the most appropriate for me because of my skill set. It's the House of Review. Plus also it's a, it's, it's a framework here in, in Canberra where it is possible to win a second the second Senate seat. And so with all those things together, actually it just felt if I didn't do this now, I'd always wonder. I'd always <laughs> wonder, should have I? And so this is the this this is the attempt to say, well, let's put all these things together. And the appetite has just been remarkable. So it's quite energizing mm. in terms of um, the possibilities. Yeah, and the way I'm reading this is that it's most certainly an evolution, not a change. It's yes. not as oh, well. I've done enough of this, no. and now I'm going to do something different. No. It's most certainly led into it. And from, I mean, you were speaking about why it seems to be the right time for you and you had those four reasons. Yes. But they're actually all social reasons too. So in other words, there's yeah. the appetite yes. for that right now based on COVID and also the fact that Canberra is and has been a quite yes. a progressive place. Yes. So if there's any place to kind of kick that off, it yes. would be here yes. because you'll get that support and understanding yes. as well. Yeah. And, and of course, because it's in the centre of politics, it's yeah. probably the right place to be. It is, yeah. So I think that those are the interesting things of it, that most certainly it's the right time for you, but really that's a reflection of the right time for the society that yeah. you're in. Yes, it um, feels like that. Yeah, and then, then, yeah, there's that evolution, which just seems to be quite logical. Yes. Um, and am I right understanding that you'll be able to, hopefully, yes. manage the political sphere with the academic and yes. the practice at the same time? It is adding into that rather than replacing um, so if I get elected, yes. I will go on leave without pay from the okay. university. Um, I think formally I can still keep my practising certificate going because I think you, you've, there are other avenues, but I haven't really started. Okay. It almost feels a little bit ahead of myself to start thinking about whether that's possible. I think that my commitment if I get elected is fully into the Senate and my skills that I've been using in those other areas will be spot on for in yeah, the Senate, transfer. but, you know, for legislative change. So, I, for instance, one of the things I've done over the years is the um, advice on the restructuring of the Australian Citizenship Act. So I've worked with parliamentary drafters before. I mean, not that you have to, to be in parliament because you have parliamentary drafters, but I sort of feel like I'm ready to roll if elected because I know those aspects that are going to be important and then on the negotiation front with the senate this is another i guess important aspect of the time being right or the or the relevance of the time it's a half senate election and so we know that no matter who wins at the next election whether it's a labor or a coalition government they will not on their own on their own bat have a majority in the senate so a crossbench which is where i would be sitting will be key for the passage of any piece of legislation so you know a lot of people say well as an independent you can't really do very much if you're not part of a party there is an opportunity actually depending how things fall that i could by virtue of that reality of the senate and that is both humbling on one level in terms of the influence but i think energizing because what i'm saying to people is i'm bringing in a commitment to community engagement here in Canberra. I've been listening to a lot of people, a commitment to evidence, which of course is intrinsic to who I am as an academic, but also a commitment to principled policy, not just a bartering, if you give me this, I'll give you that. Yeah. And not because, you know, I'm a part of a party and this is how we're, you know, we've made up particular. I mean, it's not that I'm without ideas, but it's, it's about the approach that I think is key and it's an approach which will allow, allow negotiation and hopefully improvement on the things that I have identified that are sort of priorities in my campaign. Yeah. 
I love that, you know, quite worked into that whole entire statement. You use the word commitment to evidence. Yeah. I absolutely love that statement. I think that is so applicable in these current times. Mm-hmm. That is a very good conversation piece. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I know it's a little bit different with the Senate. Politics often has the right intentions, but they often get clouded by, well, the game that is politics. Uh, whether it has to do with power, authority, whether it has to do with the media game. Yes. Do you worry about that potentially clouding the best intentions that you have behind your political career? Uh, Do you worry about that? And do you have a way of avoiding that so that it doesn't affect the things that you're planning to do? Look, I think it's a really profound question and it is part of what's driving me to do this and that saying trying to, I'm really wanting to try and change the way we do politics because I think parties obviously have a place in society in terms of frameworks for people to connect about policy but the way they've evolved and this comes back to our earlier discussion about who set them up, what are the structures of those parties, the faction systems, the power balances, they've developed in such a way that they have actually overtaken the ultimate end of what, you know, politics is meant to serve, which is the people. So I actually feel that as an independent coming in, not only might I have that opportunity in a Senate because of the way of bringing people together, but I also think it's going to have the advantage of improving the way the parties operate. Because as you said, there are a lot of people with really good intentions who get involved and have, have in the past seen the parties as the only way of doing it. And then they get caught in those structures and they don't have the capacity to influence. And I think the rise of independence is going to give those individuals within the parties a little bit more heft, a little bit more power to challenge the structures within the parties. And I think then that'll be a real win-win because we can improve the parties and the way they operate so that politics isn't the, the dirty, it's just the politics of it, but that they'll improve politics too and that our parliamentary system is going to be improved by having a few more independents who are committed to that. So that's I think that's one thing. The other is the way in which we engage with the other. There has been so much adversarial system by virtue of you're either with us or against us, you know, you're part of the government or you're the opposition. Um, and I just feel that we're at a moment in society where we need to reduce the intensity of that. Now, of course, People are not always going to agree. But if we can have a civilised discussion where we're not attacking the person or their incentives but really engaging properly with the ideas, which Parliament is a deliberative process with the committee systems and so forth has the real potential to amplify, we can then model that as a parliamentary practice that we actually want for the whole nation in all the things that we do. I mean, I often say, and many people do, all those year six students, all those primary school students who come to Parliament, come to Canberra for their visit and they go into question time and they see everything that they're being told not to do themselves <laughs> at school, the bullying, the harassment, the individualised, you know, it's just so it's so profound and we just don't have to be like that. And if you look at other parliaments around the world, they're not all like that. There's something that has happened in Australia that has just amplified that to the point where we're, I do think it's seeped through to society and we're at that sort of breaking point where people like me are saying, if we don't have a go at trying to change this, it's 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 going to be undermining of society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a real possibility here to change it. And I, I, I am really committed to staying true to those values. And if it's not doable, I get in and it's not doable, then I'll rethink what I do next. But for now, I really want to have a go at trying to make that 
um, possible. Yeah, and I can definitely see the parallel between the conversation we're having about, you know, the tradition of law versus its change. It's the same thing as the tradition yeah. of politics and yeah. its fundamental basis worth of the change that needs Bottom. to happen to essentially adapt it to... Very insightful. To just, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. see that there. Yeah. Um, one final thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm sorry this is a daft question, but I could imagine someone with your mind being interested not only at a local and a national level, but most certainly at a, at a world level. Yes, fantastic. Um, am, am I right in this? Do you compare the legal system, our society, politics yes. of Australia versus other countries? Yeah, very good question. The comparison for me more, actually is about the domestic law and international law. Mm-hmm. So what brought me up to Canberra in 2006 um, was the role of Director of the Centre for International and Public Law at ANU. And my work on citizenship has both a domestic level as to who is and isn't a citizen, and those cases I told you that I've been involved with, as well as the place of citizenship in international law. So all questions to do with dual citizenship and and why I sort of contributed a lot about changes in our Citizenship Act to do with dual citizenship, they also have an international dimension. And so I've been always interested in how domestic law and international law um, link. And that is another whole hour that we could spend (laughs) in terms of the place of international law in Australia. So I mentioned earlier before that I'd run a couple of amicus cases. Now, amicus is when you go to the court. You're not part of the dispute, but you're wanting to bring something into the court. And the one I did here in Australia was around the Northern Territory intervention when the federal government intervened in the Northern Territory and introduced legislation to deal with the really... um, awful scenarios that Indigenous communities were um, had, had become clear. And um, my colleague Ernst Wilhelm and I, we, he was a, f- a fellow at um, the centre and I was the director at the time of the centre, but we decided we'd do it as individuals to test run for the centre, what we might do in the future, a case where we wanted to bring into the court for its consideration on this matter the international law issues that are relevant. Now, Australia doesn't have a strong history of bringing international law into the courts, and that's why the parties had not used it in their cases, and you can't bring an action if everything you're wanting to say is already in the other parties. Mm -hmm. So you had to show how your stuff is different, and we showed that by saying none of the parties are bringing this in and we think it's relevant. Now, interestingly, um, the court didn't accept us, our role as amicus, But strategically, they had to read our material to make a decision as to whether they'd accept it. So we got it into their heads, and that's not devious, that's just, you know, (laughs) a a reality. And two of the judges who did accept our amicus were able to weave some of that into the judgment. And that might be something that will have an impact incrementally further down the track. But I've also been involved with an amicus case in the United States Supreme Court of a group of us called Scholars of Statelessness, because there was a US piece of legislation which effectively treated children of mothers, American mothers and American fathers, differently in terms of their right to citizenship if they were born abroad. Mm -hmm. And as a group of um, scholars, we were asked to support and make a case and and bring the evidence to the court that what the government was saying was actually not accurate and that, in fact, um, for that particular purpose of that case, the evidence of international law showed the opposite. So that's a very long-winded answer to say um, the domestic and international has always been part of my mindset for citizenship law. Um, And I've taught... I mean, I, I studied in the States, so I have a sense of this of the States. I've also taught in Israel. Mm-hmm. I taught a comparative citizenship law course where there's students from all around the world. 
um, both Jewish and Palestinian Israelis in the classroom, really stimulating discussion discussions about citizenship. Um, and as a sort of liberal democracy that um, Israel is, there's really interesting contentious issues there as well as the, having the international students there. So I find that really stimulating. Yeah. And certainly on a level of international relations and, and international policy going into parliament, those experiences influence me in remind and, and remind me that when you're on the ground in a country, it's very different to what's reported. Mm. And a lot of that is a reminder that in any international relations sort of scenario, if I'm in Parliament, that you really need to make sure you're getting the data from the experts on the ground, not just what's being reported. Yeah, talking about that evidence thing that we we're talking about before. Exactly. <laughs> it's yes, exactly, yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kim, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a fantastic insight for me, and I'm sure it will be to the listeners as well. If somebody wants to connect with you, I yes. mean, it's easy enough. I mean, I made a joke earlier that I just looked you up on Wikipedia. Yes. And, you know, there's links out of there, and that's yes. easy enough. And yes. there's, of course, the, the Kim for Canberra Party. Yes. But if, in terms of people getting in touch with you, if anything else, yes. um, do you have a preference for how they do? Um, email is great. So they can Google me and find me. And, you know, through the Kim for Canberra website, yeah. there, there's an info that'll get to me. Um, um, until an election is called, I'm working during the days, you know, at the <laughs> University of Canberra. So that address also works for me. Yeah. So I think email is probably the best. Um, it means that whatever time of the day a person wants to contact you, they're not interrupting, and I can respond at whatever time of the day it is without interrupting. And so it's an easy way of recognising we all leave very flexible lives. Uh, or, you know, our workplaces are quite flexible in when we're doing work and when we're doing outside work mm. activities. And so it will enable me to, to contact, to respond if they have any questions. Yeah, fantastic. And we'll be keeping, well, I mean, the election should be called any moment, right? They're running out of time. Yes. But 21st uh, of May is the latest, constitutionally oh, speaking, that a Senate election can go. be held. So we know that it has to be before then. Yeah, so, so we're almost there. And, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And I guess we'll, we'll watch to see how that goes for you. Best of luck with it. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you for the time. It's really wonderful. I've listened, as I said before, to some of your interviews. They're very insightful and it was really lovely to engage with your discussion today. Thank you. That is exceptionally nice of you to say. Thank you so much. Cheers. So there you have it. That was my conversation with Kim Rubenstein and I hope you enjoyed it. The insight into her as a person, into her career and also her aspirations for the future. It'll be interesting to see how things pan out. If you'd like to get in touch with Kim, then definitely do so. Just look her up on the website. That is by far the easiest thing to do. With me, probably the easiest thing to do is reach me on Instagram at Behind the Bio Podcast. Or if you prefer email, then Ashley underscore Farod at Outlook.com. And thanks again for all those people that have reached out with such great comments, pats on the back, and suggestions for new guests. It's lovely to hear from you all. Again, I'd like to thank the Coordinate Group for making this possible, and I hope I can catch you at the next episode of Behind the Bio.